Good morning, and welcome to the Cato Institute's seventh annual summit on financial regulation. My name is Jennifer Schulp, and I'm the Director of Financial Regulation Studies in Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Today's conference is named Fair Shares, Retail Investors and the Future of Equities Markets. Retail or individual investors have made a lot of headlines recently. And while GameStop caught a lot of attention in early 2021, that's only part of the story. A lot of recent innovations in investing have made the market more accessible for individual investors. In late 2019, the long trend of falling commissions on retail trading culminated in an industry-wide move to zero commission trading. And zero commission trading wasn't the only innovation as well. Traders and individual investors can now trade in apps that are easy to use from the palm of their hand. They can buy less than one full share of stock with what's known as fractional share trading. And individuals can open accounts with low and no account minimums. And I'd be remiss not to mention the pandemic as a contributing factor to individual investors opening accounts while they were looking for something to do during the lockdowns. This has all led to a surge of new investors both entering the market and making up a larger share of trading volume. There's a lot of good to be had in this story. The new investors entering the market are more, are more diverse, younger, and less wealthy than people that previously invested. This gives people more opportunities to make decisions about what to do with their own money and the opportunity to grow their wealth through investing. But the surge of retail investing has also raised a lot of questions about how those individual investors are treated by market participants and whether the market itself is fair to them. We're going to be answering and talking about a lot of those questions today. These answers to these questions are complicated. While many tend to think about retail trading as a story of someone trading on meme stocks from their phone, retail investors are a diverse bunch, and it's important to keep in mind that a lot of retail investor money is also being handled by some of the biggest names on Wall Street through retirement savings, mutual funds, and ETFs. So the little guy is also sometimes the big guy. We have a full program for you today, walking through many of these questions. We'll start this morning with a panel on retail trading and market structure, where we examine the role of retail investors in the market and whether the market is fair to them. We'll follow that with a fireside chat with SEC Commissioner Elad Roisman. And this afternoon, we'll have two more panels, one on market access for retail investors, where we will talk about uh, the gamification and a lot of the issues relating to market innovations that we talked about already. We will also talk about retail investors and equity investment options as a third panel this afternoon. Join the conversation today with hashtag CatoEcon, and please ask questions on any of the channels that you're viewing our live stream on. Without further ado, we'll move to our first panel on retail trading and market structure. This panel will be moderated by Ben Bain, who is a Bloomberg News reporter who specializes in financial markets. Ben has a JD from the George Washington University Law School, a master's degree from Johns Hopkins, and a degree in broadcast journalism from the University of Illinois. He's a go-to for me for insightful and easy to understand coverage in this space, and I look forward to the discussion that he's going to lead. Ben? Thanks a lot, Jennifer. Um, so yeah, I, I cover Wall Street regulators, including the SEC and FINRA, uh, which have been looking a lot lately at market structure and retail investors for Bloomberg News uh, here in Washington. I really think we have a great panel today. Uh, we're looking forward to a real lively discussion. We're going to try to avoid um, going too far deep into the weeds here because it can get pretty technical and really focus on some of the policy issues. And I think we have a great panel to do just that. Um, we have Justin Schack, who's a partner at Rosenblatt Securities, where he heads the firm's market structure analysis group. Uh, he's widely quoted in the media on a, a number of these issues. Um, and previously, uh, he was also a journalist. Um, and, uh, you know, he, uh, he's, he's really uh, just kind of um, often quoted on a lot of these issues and, and appears really, um, 
you know, kind of across the board talking in TV and print media. So I think we'll have a really interesting perspective. He has a BA from Seton Hall and a master's uh, in history from the University of Connecticut. Uh, next, we're pleased to have uh, Gina Gale Fletcher, who's a law professor at Duke University. Professor uh, Fletcher focuses on complex financial instruments and uh, market regulation in her scholarship. Uh, and she previously won uh, Indiana University Trustees Teaching Award for Excellence in Teaching. Um, and early in her career, she uh, practiced law at Gibson Dunn here in Washington. Uh, she graduated magna cum laude from Mount Holyoke College and earned her JD cum laude from uh, Cornell. And in March, notably, she testified before the Senate Banking Committee on a number of the issues that we're going to discuss today. Uh, finally, we're uh, very glad to be joined by Jonathan Macy, who, in addition to being an adjunct scholar at Cato, is the Sam Harris Professor of Corporate Law, Corporate Finance, and Securities Law at Yale University, um, and a professor at the Yale School of Management. Uh, he previously taught at Cornell, uh, and he earned his undergraduate degree cum laude from Harvard and his JD from Yale Law School. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna start out by asking each of the panelists to kind of get us going with uh, some opening arguments, some thoughts, uh, just about what they find most compelling right now uh, in the market, the biggest questions they see right now facing uh, really what's been kind of an unprecedented boom in terms of retail investors, ordinary investors, average investors, people just uh, trading at home during the pandemic or trying to make some money for retirement, getting involved in the stock market, um, and I'm um, really looking forward to, to, to hearing, uh, hearing from them. And once we finish that up, you know, please send in your questions. Uh, don't be shy. You can send them to hashtag CatoEcon on Cato's website, Cato's Facebook page, and also on the YouTube channel. Um, to start out, Justin, uh, do you want to uh, tell us a little bit about what, what's most compelling to you right now in the stock market? Yeah, sure, Ben. Thank you. Thanks to Jennifer and Cato for inviting me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Um, so for me, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of focus in the wake of the GameStop um, episode on payment for order flow between retail brokers and the market makers that execute their orders. And um, when I think about the growth of retail trading and how it affects market structure, that's not really my primary concern. I'm sure we'll hear a lot about that in the discussion. I'm happy to address that. doesn't mean that that payment for order flow shouldn't be scrutinized. Uh, there's no doubt that accepting it represents a conflict of interest, but I worry that we might have a bigger problem and, and that problem would be there even if payment for order flow went away entirely. And that problem, potential problem is the huge growth that we've seen in the portion of total uh, stock trading that's done off exchange away from public markets. And I think we need to find out whether that's damaging price discovery and market quality for everybody. Uh, I think it's important to step back and remember that the core function of any market is getting the price of something right. If you think about it from like an economics 101 point of view, uh, maximizing the interaction of supply and demand in, in a centralized fashion or a virtually centralized fashion gets you the most accurate price for an asset. So if I'm selling my home, for instance, I don't want just five people looking at it and bidding on it. I'd like to get 50 or 500 or even 5,000 if I can, and I'm likelier to get a higher price. The rules that we have in the US for stock trading allow an extraordinarily large portion of our supply and demand to not interact with the public markets and instead be executed bilaterally or in some other segmented fashion off exchange. We have the most liberal rules in the world regarding this, and we also have the highest level of non-public trading. And that was before the surge in retail trading that, we've, that we're all talking about today. And since then, it's gotten even higher because most retail orders are internalized instead of being exposed to public markets. And I'll just give you some quick numbers on this. September 2019, <clears throat> excuse me, before zero commissions that Jennifer alluded to in her introduction were widely adopted by the retail brokerage industry, off exchange trading was 36% of the total in US equities. By January 2020, just a few months later, we were up to 40%. If you go a year after that in January 2021 with the impact of the pandemic at the peak of the meme stock craze, we hit a record high of 47%. Many individual days this past December and January, we saw more than 50% of volume done off exchange. And if you look at the most active stocks, the 20 most actives as a group, they are routinely more than 50%. And several of the individual names there are greater than 60 or even greater than 70% sometimes. And so I worry, you know, what does this mean for that core function of markets, getting the price right? Is allowing nearly half, and in some cases, two thirds or more of the trading activity to occur in these less regulated, non-transparent private markets 
degrading price discovery and market quality for everybody. And I think that's really important because all the off-exchange trades reference the public market prices. Even if a retail investor that's uh, executing off-exchange gets a better deal, uh, and they often do, it's called price improvement, um, are we just improving on bad prices is, is what I worry about. And would those prices be much better if we were encouraging more interaction of supply and demand? And so if you get rid of payment for order flow, it won't change any of that. I think that's also a big misconception that I see among some critics of, of payment for order flow and even some policymakers that if you get rid of it, if you ban it, doesn't move all the off-exchange stuff on exchange. Um, there are some retail brokers like Fidelity Brokerage, which is a very big one, that does not accept payment for order flow and still uh, executes with wholesalers. So I think this is the big question that policymakers should be trying to answer. I don't know the answer to it. It's possible we have no problem at all and our market is big enough to support the levels of internalization we're seeing now, but it's also possible that maybe we had a problem back in 2019 at 36% and it's only gotten worse over the past couple of years. So I really hope the policymaking community studies this in detail before they move forward with specific remedies um, to try to you know figure out what the problem is. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for that, Justin. Um, Professor Fletcher, uh, you wanna you wanna pick it up from there? Yes, uh, thank you, Ben. Um, so good morning to everyone. It's definitely a pleasure to be here, and I'd like to also thank Cato and Jennifer Schulp for hosting um, this event and for inviting me to participate. Um, I'm very much so looking forward to the conversation this morning um, with my panelists and with all of you. Um, and so I actually uh, completely agree with everything Justin said, uh, but I'm actually going to talk about the payment for order flow issue. Uh, so it is uncontroversial, I think, to say that in the past decade, retail or individual investors have had greater access to the capital markets than ever before. And just as uh, Jennifer alluded to in her opening comments, right, this is great on many dimensions, right? The new uh, investors in the market are more diverse, they're younger, um, and they are less wealthy, and they are learning how to uh, interact with this um, with the market. And this greater or increase in retail participation um, has been fueled in no short to no short uh, measure by the rise of low cost and no cost brokers, right? Um, and these brokers are able to offer uh, what I'm going to call supposedly free trading uh, to their customers because of these agreements that they have with market makers, with these intermediaries, um, and with the these market makers, uh, brokers, have agreements in which they um, agree to route customer orders to the broker, uh, sorry, to the market maker, and the market maker uh, fills the order internally, which is what Justin was alluding to earlier, and then they pay the broker a percentage or a part of the spread that's earned from executing that trade. Now, the wider the spread, the more the broker and the market maker are able to profit. And this is basically the structure of the operation that we're dealing with when we talk about payment for order flow. And so, while it facilitates supposedly free trading, uh, because nothing is truly free in the capital markets, um, it does create an inherent conflict of interest between the broker and its customers that are particularly problematic. Um, so to start uh, with payment for order flow, um, what we are allowing is that we're allowing brokers to really place their own financial interests above those of their customers, right? So rather than routing orders based on where a customer can truly receive the best price for their transaction, um, brokers are routing based on agreements that they have with market makers. Now, in response to this argument, uh, some claim or some say, well, this doesn't happen that much because we do have the requirement of best execution. There is some price improvement, um, but studies have called, recent studies have called uh, into question whether or not price improvement actually occurs uh, within this payment for order flow um, uh, situation or setup, right? Um, and we also have um, uh, um, from the SEC uh, a recent, um, a regulatory action against Robinhood, for example, for failing to satisfy its duty of best execution. So in December 2020, uh, Robinhood was fined by the SEC for failing to provide its customers with the best prices. Um, and more recently, the same broker, Robinhood, was fined by FINRA um, uh, for um, for failing to provide, or sorry, for misleading clients and for providing false information. Um, and that fine was the largest in the organization's history, and it was, you know, widely spoken about. Um, and so, to me, this is pointing us to kind of 
really recognizing and grappling with the fact that this supposedly free trading that is being offered by Robinhood, which has gained some popularity and notoriety and others, right, is in short, not free. Indeed, it's costing retail traders um, quite a bit um, because we have brokers who are primarily concerned with increasing their own profits rather than providing truly fair um, access to the markets for retail investors. Um, and then just building a little bit off of what Justin said, right, the consequences of this conflicted ordering routing practices, um, they kind of impact everyone, right? So as these orders are being routed to market makers and filled internally, they're being siphoned away from the public markets. So this is exactly what Justin was saying, so I won't spend a lot of time here. Um, but with fewer trades making it to the public markets, we have liquidity and price discovery both being negatively impacted. And this makes everyone worse off. Um, but what's also important to note here is that decreased liquidity and um, uh, and worsened price discovery also widen spreads, right? So with the spreads of different uh, transactions being even wider, this actually makes trading more expensive for um, those of us that are in the market trying to buy and sell shares, except it also earns greater profits for our intermediaries like our market makers and our brokers. So we now have this market in which it's more expensive for us to trade, whether we realize it or not, um, but intermediaries are earning tremendous profits. And the last thing I'll say here before wrapping up is that as our markets continue to swing wildly from highs to lows, with one meme stock to the next, we have to think about the broader impact that this is having on the integrity of the market. Now, it's undeniably easier and to some extent cheaper to trade call options and a handful of shares here and there, but this does not necessarily mean that investors or the markets are actually doing better overall. Right when prices fluctuate significantly from a day on a day-to-day -day basis with no changes in the fundamentals of the company, this has serious implications for market integrity. The U.S. capital markets are renowned for their liquidity and for their price discovery, but with these recurring meme stock crazes, um, this may be causing some investors to withdraw from the markets or to look elsewhere. And so this is actually uh, having the longer term effect of making the markets less attractive and potentially riskier, not just for U.S. investors and not just for retail investors, but for all investors. And so with that, I'm going to stop there, but I look forward to continuing this conversation with everyone this morning. Thanks a lot. Uh, Professor Macy. Yeah, these are great opening comments and I want to sort of uh, uh, piggyback on them uh, to some extent and to to talk about the from a, a 40,000 foot uh, platform. Um, what is, it has the question, what is the role of the retail investor? Um, you know, all of this discussion takes place against the background of financial of uh, of uh, what we know about financial markets and what we know about corporate finance and rules, views about, uh, you know, well-settled, understood financial science about diversification uh, and portfolio theory and the capital asset pr pricing model. And the theory would say, you know, retail investors, if they're rational, won't try to beat the market. They won't try to beat informed investors. They'll hold diversified portfolios of, uh, of securities uh, and that they're subjecting themselves, these retail investors are subjecting themselves to massive amounts of, um, of, uh, of uh, uh, firm specific risk by buying these meme stocks and holding undiversified portfolios of securities. But, you know, I'm a libertarian. I think if these investors, you know, largely they're, they're, they, they like being engaged in the market. To some extent, this is a consumption good. Hopefully they're not investing more than they can afford to lose. I'm not really worried about them. Then we look at the, uh, 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 although investor education is, is something that I would certainly support uh, as an antidote to uh, uh, some of the things that Robinhood does to kind of entice unsophisticated retail investors into a platform that they liken to Mohegan Sun or something of that nature. Um, I do think all this massive increase in popularity of retail investing is um, uh, is good for the markets. We're bringing a lot of tr of uh, order flow uh, into the markets. We're providing uh, uh, what what financial economists would call noise traders, uh, who are providing grist 
uh, that 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 market makers and more informed trading traders can can trade off on. Uh, I want to make two last comments, picking up on on what my uh, the private pr prior interlocutors have said. One relates to uh, the point Justin was making about two tiered markets, and I just say there is a there is a a big connection between the emergence of two-tiered markets and payment for order flow. Because the way that places like Citadel and Virtu make money is by trading on the the relatively small portion of the market that shows up on the NBBO, that shows up on the, on the SIP, and then going into this the market of um, of, uh, of uh, trading that doesn't show up on the SIP, odd lots, and and the vast swaths of the market that just isn't talking about, and uh, and uh, making money by transacting securities on a on a much tighter spread, better off this available in those in those in those markets now. Uh, it may be that this is perfectly okay to do, but building on what Justin said, I do think that uh, we need to be a lot more transparent about, at least, about the fact that there are two markets in this in this country. There's the NBBO, and then there's the rest of the market, and the rest of the market is a better market. The retail investors are getting the inferior market because of, of payment for order flow. Um, you know, maybe that's okay. Uh, maybe that's, you know, but, but I, I think that the fact that it's not transparent, uh, it's undisclosed, uh, and it's not consistent with the basic, uh, 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 the, the, the way that we typically think of the legal obligation of payment for order flow is, 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 is relevant. The last point I want to make, it has to do with, um, you know, kind of where we go from here with respect to retail investment, right? Because we have two models of retail trading. We have the, the traditional commission model. And the one thing we know about that is that it's very transparent. People, it's very easy to enforce uh, the fiduciary duty of best execution uh, in a commission world. And, um, uh, 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 but, but, but the last thing we know about it is that investors don't like it. They've given the choice between commission trading and a payment for order flow model where the pay, where the fees are non-transparent. Uh, people seem to like the payment for order flow market. So we're in a very weird place in American economic history with respect to retail trading, where we have on the one hand, a model that, that, that uh, investors demonstrably have said they don't like, which is the commission-based model. Then we have another model, which is the payment for order flow model, where, uh, which is, um, you know, in essence, a, you know, a, a, a model that is not consistent with a very important rule of, of uh, best execution. It's not transparent um, uh, and, uh, and, and, and deeply problematic because of, uh, of the, uh, it, 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 it seems, uh, borderline, if not completely uh, corrupt in many, many ways. So the question is, uh, given the, the fact that the, the two, the, the two, old-fashioned paradigms for retail trading uh, are broken uh, it's very you interest it'd be very important I think to think about where we where we go from here and I'll stop there thank you so much thanks so much um, so you know really interesting points it sounds like on some of these issues there's not a ton of uh, a ton of space but there's also um, you know a lot of nuance there. Before we kind of you know get into some of some of the technical questions here, I think we it's worth also taking a step back and realizing that less than a year ago, no one was talking about the idea of payment for order flow and some of these other technical ideas that have kind of gone mainstream. I think you can kind of even you know flip on uh, cable news now and 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 if you wouldn't be surprised to see people talking about meme stocks and, and some of these other issues. Um, so with that in mind, I, I want to kind of start with the general question that um, some critics of the current market structure and particularly uh, payment for order flow and, and payment for order flow is, you know, basically the idea that if you're a retail brokerage, um, someone mentioned Robinhood, but they're certainly not the only one. Um, there are wholesale brokerages like Citadel and Virtu are two of the best known 
ones, and they're essentially paying the retail brokerage for the opportunity to execute um, those trades rather than the retail brokerage just sending it on to the stock market, just a kind of level set for, for people in the audience. Um, so I want to start just by, by reading a, a comment that Elizabeth Warren, um, Senator from Massachusetts, made kind of right, right as we were kind of seeing this wild swings in GameStop and some of these other meme stocks and, and really just, you know, this up and down ride late January, early February. So she was on CNN and she said, what's happening with GameStop is just a reminder of what's been going on on Wall Street now for years and years and years. It's a rigged game. I think essentially the question, this is, this is now me, no longer Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I think essentially the question that has people so interested in this topic is, is the stock market fair? And we look at Cato's uh, title of this conference, I think that kind of gets to the heart of it. So real quickly, I'd like each of you to maybe respond to that statement by Elizabeth Warren, that it's a rigged game. Um, Professor Macy, you touched on this a little bit at the end of your comments about retail investors and the current situation they face, but for retail investors, is it a rigged game? Let's start with you, Professor Macy, and we'll kind of uh, work backwards. Thanks. Right. Well, in order to determine whether it's a rigged game or whether the markets are fair, we have to have a, a definition of, uh, of fairness. And my definition of fairness is for retail investors, retail investors who are getting accurate and efficient informed prices. Um, you know, and if, if share prices are efficient, and I'm purchasing a stock, uh, the price of that stock will reflect all available public information about the firm. So I'm getting a fair price in the sense that I'm getting a, the, the market's assessment of the present value of the future income stream to me associated with owning that financial, uh, fa financial assets. And I think in that sense, uh, markets are generally fair. I disagree with Professor Warren. I don't think there's any evidence from her point of view. On the other hand, there's also an idea of transactional fairness. You know, am I getting the best possible price I can get when I purchase shares uh, on that particular transaction? The the you know the either the commission or the 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 execution quality price if there's a payment for order flow transaction. And there, you know, with payment for order flow, I'm not getting the best price in the market, but retail investors are never going to get the best price in the market. They're going to have to pay commissions that are greater than what, you know, wholesale investors trade. So I don't know that fairness is attainable, but we can at least have more transparency. I think on that point, is the market rigged right now for retail investors or are they getting a fair, a fair deal? Um, so, um, I think that I would have to agree a bit with, um, what, uh, Jonathan has said about how we define fairness. And so I actually think about it more along of, I think that there is the broader fairness, but I think the transactional fairness point, uh, to use to kind of stay within the, the language that Jonathan has used is quite important here. And with payment for order flow, that transactional fairness is just, um, it's absent from the markets. Um, there are studies, uh, that I've alluded to and a very recent study that demonstrates that these claims that, um, retail investors transactions, uh, actually experience price improvement through, um, this internalization, this internal uh, fulfillment of their orders does not occur. That indeed, um, retail traders are getting a worse price uh, with payment for order flow than they would get otherwise. Um, and so to me, then the markets cannot be deemed fair. But I do think that we have this tension, which um, has been alluded to, which is that, you know, um, retail traders don't like commissions. But despite not liking commissions, we still have to be uh, thinking about well, do they have the best, do they have um, enough information to make an informed decision about how or where to trade? And payment for order flow completely um, is, is completely opaque, right, in terms of how that works. Um, and in addition, or on top of that, even more so, uh, we have um, retail traders who are just not getting the best price. And then when you add that on or you layer that on to the two-tiered markets that we have now um, going on, uh, because of this structure that we have, it is really difficult to say that on, on an overall or even on a transactional basis that the markets are indeed fair. Um, and that is, is, is I, I, maybe I wouldn't go as far as to say it's completely rigged, but I, I do think that there are questions as to whether or not it's fair. Um, and, and I, um, so yeah, so that's right in that. 
Thanks. Justin, what do you think? I mean, you, you, you spend a chunk of your day looking at data, looking at market structure. Um, the CEOs and the top executives from market makers say that retail investors have never had it better. Um, is there something to this argument that the markets are rigged or, or, or is it really um, just that this is, this is how the markets work in the U.S. and, and indeed they are efficient? Yeah, so I, not only do I look at that every day, I've been doing it for 25 years, and I think it's important to keep that um, time series in mind when we when we try to answer this question. I, I think rigged is a very dangerous word for anybody, especially a policymaker, to use in describing a capital market and especially the, the U.S. equities market, which is the biggest in the world. And uh, you know, so many different people rely on, uh, whether they're issuers or asset owners. And we learned that the hard way a few years back. There was a, a book that came out that alleged, and a, the author of that book got, got on national TV and told everybody that the stock market was rigged. And you know the, that book was, had a lot of inaccuracies in it, um, and, and portrayed things in, in a light that was uh, not not exactly right. And I think scared people. And I think there was more of an impact on investor confidence from those statements than any of the things that he was alleging were fundamentally unfair uh, in the book. When you look at the sweep of what's happened in US equity market structure over the past two plus decades, we actually used to have a rigged system, a literally rigged system. If you look at the way stocks uh, that were they were called over-the-counter stocks back then, now they're called NASDAQ listed because NASDAQ has become an exchange, but they used to be more like sort of like the fixed income markets or the FX markets where it was an upstairs OTC market where you would trade Intel and Microsoft. And the dealers in that market, and I believe it was 1996, were uh, settled with the Justice Department uh, uh, an allegation that they were literally rigging the quotes. They, they uh, quoted the markets too wide. We used to quote in uh, eighths of a dollar and they were not quoting the odd eighths, I believe it was. They were only quoting the even eighths. And so the spread, you know, today we have a minimum increment of one penny. So when we're talking about spreads and investor cost. One penny is the minimum today and many stocks trade at one penny. It used to be 12 and a half cents. The dealers in that market trading Intel, Microsoft, Cisco and others wasn't good enough for them. They wanted a quarter per share. So they literally rigged the market. And what we've seen over the past 25 years, there have been a lot of unintended consequences along the way, which I, you know, maybe we'll discuss in a little bit more detail later. And I'm always wary of when we look to make changes in the market, but we've wound up in a place that is much, much better for all asset owners, not just retail. I think we talked a little bit about this before. There's there's retail people punting on GameStop, you know, with hopefully, uh, as Jonathan said, as money they can afford to lose. Um, but then there's also people who are in 401ks and 529s and, and IRAs and, and uh, using those types of vehicles for long-term uh, savings and investment. And I think all of those folks, you know, pension beneficiaries, et cetera, they're all better off because so much of the VIG, if you will, that intermediaries have taken, that used to take that 25 cents, uh, is now going into their pockets instead of intermediaries' pockets. Now the market's got a lot more complex as a result of that. There, there's just so much to keep track of, and it's very, very difficult for the average investor to understand. But at the end of the day, they get a much, much, much better deal today than they used to. That's not to say that they couldn't do even better than they are today. And so I think we need to ask that question, you know, is the rise in off-exchange trading hurting market quality for everybody? But I also think we need to be careful about just kind of changing things willy-nilly because we could set off a chain of unintended consequences that winds up in a bad place that we can't control. A little bit. Um, I want to take a question from the audience. Uh, Alexandra on Slido um, put in a question. She's, she's asking, um, is the market structure as it exists, is it designed with retail investors in mind or is it really for larger players? And I think there's a distinction between what Senator Warren was saying in February about the markets being rigged versus the simple question of, is what's out there right now is when you're executing a stock trade, is that actually meant to benefit the retail investor versus the large investor? So the question isn't, is, is it fundamentally unfair? The question is, could it be better? And, and, and maybe where are retailer, retail investors not getting as good of a deal? Is there anything that you would point to there, Jonathan? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, um, traditionally, the markets have been, um, they rely, I guess I would put it this way, the markets rely on retail investors to, 
to supply liquidity. I guess a cynical way to look at it would be to say that uh, professional investors need somebody to trade against in order to make money. So I think that uh, retail investors are critical to the market. The harder question is whether uh, the market, so retail investors are good for the market. The harder question is whether the market is good for for retail investors. And and I, I would also just end by saying, regardless of what the, um, you know, how, you know, the market structure is organized, clearly the rise of ETFs and, and earlier uh, uh, the um, index funds and stock exchanges, and also, you know, to give the devil its due, these uh, retail trading platforms like Robinhood, right? They, um, they have they have oriented the market towards the retail investor for better or for worse one of the things i think that was so compelling about this question about these questions about market structure issues which um you know even people who love to geek out on this can admit get pretty weedy pretty fast earlier this year was this david versus goliath story so the idea that you had this band of retail investors coming together and essentially uh, taking on the hedge funds or the powerful interests on Wall Street. Um, Gina Gale, I want to ask you, you know, was that actually what happened earlier this year, number one? And number two, one of the important components in all of this was short selling. And uh, a Slido user is asking, you know, what role do you see for short selling in the market? Um, is it important to, to healthy markets? Um, if you could address that, please. Thanks. Sure. Um, so the the narrative of David versus Goliath, as you noted, Ben, was um, key to, uh, you know, this whole GameStop mania and uh, some meme stocks since. Um, and there is still a lot left to, I think, to sift through in terms of what's going on in the market there. Uh, because um, one of the things that it should be noted is that while there was um, all of this retail trading involved, there was also quite a bit of trading being done um, following that momentum from uh, individual retail investors, right? So there were a lot of um, larger players in the market uh, that were also participating in in this um, in this groundswell, if we want to call it such, um, you know, of of enthusiasm for for GameStop. And so while it um, it, you know, and there were large investors that were hurt. As we saw, there were some hedge funds that actually lost quite a bit of money through short selling, which goes to the second part of your question, or because of their, their short selling positions. Um, and so that narrative of David versus Goliath, I think it lends, um, it gives some kind of support uh, uh, to retail investors who want to feel as though they've taken back power from the market. Uh, but I think that that should just be questioned so thoroughly because, um, you know, there are larger players that were also benefiting from this, uh, that were kind of pushing that momentum in a way. And we, we're, we're still I think sifting through some of those details to see what's going on there. Um, but I do think that it has made a lot of the markets kind of sit up and pay attention a bit more to the retail investors and to what their roles are. In terms of short selling, you know, I think that short selling gets kind of um, a pretty bad rap um, in the markets. I think that short selling is entirely necessary for healthy markets. Um, you know, it's the concept, it's it's a very un-American thing, right? To bet against something, right? Everybody wants to bet for something. And so we we kind of treat those who uh, shorts, uh, who enter into short sales as being, you know, the obvious villains in stories. Um, but really it's short sellers who bring a lot of useful information into the market and short sellers are kind of also necessary for us to be able to kind of have that healthy efficiency in the markets and, and to try and get that good price discovery going. Um, and so there is a role for short selling in the market. Um, but, you know, from, from my own personal viewpoint, I do think that there probably does need to be a bit more transparency um, about um, about the short sales that are going on in the market um, and, and maybe some more research about what that looks like and some more transparency on that point. But just outlawing short sales is just not the answer there. So thanks you. Uh, so, so Justin, I, I want to go back uh, to to one of your comments earlier when you were talking about, in your view, things have gotten much better for retail investors, but that doesn't mean that that they're perfect. So um, I'm going to give you a promotion, or or maybe not, depending on how you look at it. And and now you're uh, the chairman of the SEC. Uh, so uh, you know, where are the areas where where things need to be improved? Uh, where would you look? Um, and, and and what do you think? 
uh, needs to happen. And, and, and just a little more, um, you know, specifically to that, um, if you're thinking about a market that is designed or is best for retail investors, what does that look like? Sure. So before I answer that question, just to go back to the question on is are the rules designed for retail? I think it's important um, to, to note that institutions really weren't a force in the market until the 1960s and the SEC was created in the 1930s. It was really a retail market for many, many years. And only, you know, from the 60s when we had a lot of pension funds and some of the hedge funds and trusts uh, through the mutual fund boom in the 80s and 90s, have we had an institutional market. So a lot of our rules, which are still on the books, securities laws and, and rules, were designed with retail investor protection in mind. And even the more recent rules, if you look at regulation NMS, which really uh, underlies uh, trading in markets and equities today, uh, a lot of those rules are designed with retail investors in mind. And in fact, I hear complaints all the time from our institutional brokerage customers that I'm trying to trade huge blocks of stocks in a, in a market that was designed for retail and it's, it's frustrating for them. So uh, to put that aside and then and then uh, answer the more recent question, you know, what would I do if I were uh, running the SEC? I mean, I, I think, first of all, tread very carefully because I look back at these past 25 years and very well-intentioned regulations, sometimes necessary regulations, they're always going to have unintended consequences that you cannot control. So make sure that there is a problem that is worth solving with policy before you start messing around. And so I get back to that. I'm, I'm sort of like a broken record with this. Let's study what's going on with off-exchange trading and see, do we have an issue, right? Is market quality being hurt by this and if it is then we can decide what to do about it and you know maybe it's a problem that only exists in a segment of the market and we can try to attack it that way um with respect to retail I, you know look I, part of this is you know what's the right way to invest in retail and i sort of i guess share jonathan's views on that like if you if you want to go take your your money and and invest it all in some meme stock and cross both fingers and hope that you don't lose it all. That's kind of your business. It's a free country. Um, but we need to we need to make sure those investors are protected. And I think one of the things that the SEC is looking at now, and everybody's expecting them to come out with this big report on on the meme stock episode. Uh, we talked a little bit about short selling, just uh, short sale uh, rules just now. I think maybe short sale disclosures might be one of the things that they will look at and making sure that, um, you know, th that's adequate. Uh, also the settlement cycle. So there, there was a lot of um, uh, volatility, <clears throat> excuse me, related to some of the meme stocks and trading bans that some of the retail brokers had to put into place because we have this long settlement cycle now where you have to wait days from the trade being made to when the trade actually settles. And there's a lot of capital that has to be put at risk by broker dealers, including retail brokers, online retail brokers. And so if you shorten that, you take some of that risk, you reduce that risk and the likelihood that uh, folks are going to have to say, well, look, you're cut off. You can't trade this stock today or you can't buy this stock today because everybody else is buying it. And I don't have enough capital at the clearinghouse to cover you. Uh, you. You take that out of the equation. So looking at some of these things, I think, is necessary and appropriate. But I would also be looking more broadly, given that we've had this very big increase in off exchange trading at what that's doing to market quality. And, and it's worth noting that the rules you know, we talked about two-tiered markets a little bit before. I didn't agree with everything that my colleagues said on, on those things, but I think it, it's very true that we have a two-tiered market. Exchanges play by one set of rules that are pretty strict, and the off-exchange world plays by a different set of rules that is less strict. And exchanges wind up doing lots of things to try to compete for the same order flow with that less regulated uh, uh, portion of the market that adds to a lot of complexity. And these are, these are some of the things that people complain about with market structure. So I think looking at that and seeing if maybe there are ways to harmonize those would make sense. Thanks. And uh, I'm sure the other two uh, panelists also wanna be SEC, SEC chair for a little bit. So uh, I, uh, I wanted to just also mention uh, in that context, um, the current, the, the, the real SEC chair, uh, Gary Gensler, uh, gave an interview with Barron's last week, and he said that banning payment for order flow was on the table. Um, so in the context of what you would um, fix or change or what you would do if you were uh, in his shoes, um, can you also address, please, whether you think banning payment for order flow is a good idea? Um, Jonathan, and then, and then I'll go to you, Gina Gale. Thanks a lot.
I'm gonna I'm gonna go uh, real quickly to to Gina Gale here. I think uh, Jonathan was on mute, and then we'll come right back to Jonathan. Uh, Gina Gale, so so you're SEC chair now, man. It's it's going quickly in this administration. Everyone's just you know there for a couple of minutes and back. So Gina Gale, you're there, and Jonathan, then you're gonna get another chance. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. So um, if I if I had the honor uh, of being in Gary Gensler's Chairman Gensler's shoes, um, yes, I think I I would actually go ahead and and ban payment for order flow. Now, notwithstanding um, the the uh, very good points that have been made about studying the issues and such, I I think that that is definitely a necessary part of it. Um, but payment for order flow, it it's opaque. It is um, inherently conflicted, and it really does result in um, in worst prices for um, for the for traders in the market. Um, and I don't think that banning payment for order flow will solve all the problems that we have in our current market. I think that that is entirely true. And banning payment for order flow is just one of the things that would need to be done in order to address some of the market problems that we currently face. Um, but at, at base, I don't think that it is possible for payment for order flow to exist with the um, fiduciary obligations of brokers to find um, to, to, to find the best prices or to execute, uh, to have best execution for their customers. And so I think that we, we need to uh, possibly think about banning payment for order flow. And I think that this will be also a way for us to kind of move the ball forward in terms of changing some of the problematic aspects of market structure that we are um, currently seeing and, and struggling with today. Thanks for your service, uh, leading uh, Wall Street's main regulator. Jonathan, now, you're, now you've are now you been confirmed by the Senate and uh, you're the new chair. I'm extremely reluctant to ban a practice that is um, uh, 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 that is uh, uh, consensual uh, between market participants. I think that what we should do with payment for order flow is require that the execution of orders uh, that are receiving payment for order flow uh, be done in such a way that they comply with the duty of best execution. It's not at all clear that we would have payment for order flow, however, if the uh, payment for order flow practice had to comply with best execution because the be basic business model is based on this bifurcated market structure where you have a kind of a, an inside good market, where which is the market on which Citadel is executing trade and the uh, outside market, the SIP, uh, which is the market on which the retail investors are, are, are being executed. And the duty of best execution requires the best execution not necessarily on the NBBNO, but on the best on the best market, and I think that requiring payment for that, that requiring best execution would not only get rid of the worst characteristics of, of payment for order flow, it would also solve a lot of the problems with the it would create incentives to get rid of the two tier markets that Justin was describing. Yeah, and Justin, I mean, can can, can you maybe? Uh expand a little bit on some of the issues around payment for order flow. It's, it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's one of these terms that I think we're, we're talking a lot about on this panel. Um, and as you know, we're, we've been hearing about it more and more uh, from regulators. Uh, you know, it's, it's obviously something that is front and center to whatever um, is going to change in the market structure. But I think it'd be, it'd be useful to hear from you um, and what you're seeing in the market. And and just uh, you know, kind of some of these transparency and and other conflict issues that um, you know Gina Gale ha mentioned earlier. Sure, ha happy to do that. I mean, I think there there are a lot of misconceptions about payment for order flow, and you know, some of the bigger ones are you know the, the fact that there's it's it's completely opaque. You know, it isn't. It's more opaque than the public markets. But there is disclosure on payment for order flow. There are uh, reports that both retail brokers. And wholesalers have to file, which are public data uh, under Rules 605 and 606, which do show, you know, the the volumes that are that are done uh, by the wholesalers, the level, the execution quality, price improvement. Uh, the, the retail brokers have to report to whom they are sending order flow, including the wholesalers, and and what the payment for order flow rates are, or any other, uh, you know, sort of compensation that they get. So, you know, people have said maybe that's not enough, and there needs to be more disclosure. But there is some disclosure today. Um, and, and the idea that it's a, a kind of a strict quid pro quo, I don't think is quite right either. 
I think maybe it originated that way uh, back in the 80s or before when, you know, this, this has been around for quite some time and it's been controversial for just as long. Uh, but in, in the modern form, really, if you think about it from the market maker standpoint, they are benefiting from trading in a bilateral fashion instead of quoting on a public market where anyone can come hit their quote and they can get run over and they have a high risk of having an unprofitable trade. They can instead trade with somebody off exchange. And so whatever the, the quoted spread is on the exchange, they're willing to give back some of that. So let's say the spread is $10 to 10.05 in stock XYZ. The wholesaler market maker might be willing to sell to a retail customer at 10.03. And that would happen with or without payment for order flow. Retail brokers will send their flow to wholesalers for many, many reasons. The rebate, the payment that they get is one of them. It's a consideration, but it's also not a consideration at all for some brokers like Fidelity Brokerage, which I, which I mentioned before. What Fidelity does is says, whatever you're going to give back from that public spread, that NBBO, give it all to my customer. I don't want any of it. You know, that's kind of the conflict of interest is, you know, do you take some of it from the market maker for yourself or do you give it all to your customer? And I think if we banned payment for order flow, I could talk a little bit about what I think would happen. Uh, I don't think any of the retail flow that's currently wholesaled today would go to exchanges. Um, I think there would be other adjustments that retail brokers make, but there, there's still a lot of powerful incentives for those firms to send their order flow to market makers off exchange instead of build the infrastructure that's required uh, and have all the, the manpower that's required to route among the 16 different exchanges we have today, the three dozen or so dark pools where you can execute orders. It's a pretty big undertaking and they would rather outsource that. There's also liability issues if there are errors. Exchanges have limited liability, which we've seen in some, some cases where there have been hundreds of millions of dollars in errors. The exchanges couldn't make customers whole, but the wholesaler, wholesalers did cut those checks to, uh, to retail investors. So um, I'm not trying to say we should or shouldn't ban payment for order flow. Uh, but you know, it's, it's a, I think a more nuanced, uh, world than, than a lot of people may perceive. And, and really, sorry, the, 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 the biggest issue, um, we should be looking at, in my opinion, again, when you look at that five cent spread versus trading at three cents wide off exchange, um, could the on exchange spread be two cents if everything went to the exchange? I don't know the answer to that question. Some people would say it would. I don't think we've really studied that enough to know, and, and I think we should be. I want to, I want to, um, we've, we've covered a lot of ground, so I want to give everyone a chance to, to kind of uh, maybe digest a little bit and, 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 and kind of close uh, with the important points. Before we do that, Jonathan and Gina Gale, can you all just take, a, you know, maybe half a minute and just respond to some of, uh, you know, Justin's points on payment for order flow, because I do feel like that's pretty central to uh, the debate we're having here. Thanks a lot. Jonathan, you want to start, you want to go first? Or uh, Gina Gale, why don't why don't we start with you? Sure. Um, so I, um, you know, I, I think that Justin made some interesting points, but I, while there is some disclosure, uh, there is definitely insufficient disclosure on the points of payment for order flow. The information that is provided is aggregated. It does not really provide investors with um, good quality information about the actual cost. And so I think Justin's point is in entirely right about, you know, well, it's a matter of whether or not we, um, you know, for a, for a broker, whether or not they keep some of that spread for themselves or if they share it with their um, retail customers that are making the trade. And just as, um, and, and, you know, as, as has been mentioned, Fidelity does not keep any of it for themselves. But that to me, it means that this is entirely, um, this is entirely incompatible with the, with, with the, the duty of best execution. Um, and so while there is some disclosure, there is definitely not enough. And I think that the, um, the enforcement actions that we've seen against Robinhood tell us that Robinhood is also not making a lot of these disclosures and not making them well. Um, and I think that we, we really, yes, payment for order flow is a um, nuanced topic, but I, I think the nuance there is that it's conflicted um, and, and that it is one that is actually causing a bit more um, problems than it is solving. Um, and so I think that having that good hard look at it um, and the fact that there are capital markets that exist without it tell us that this is not necessarily something we need for an efficient capital markets. 
Thanks. And uh, Gina Gale, while, while we're with you, um, you know, maybe uh, it'd be, it'd be a good time to kind of uh, wrap up your, 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 your broader points here, even beyond payment for order flow. We're going to go back to Jonathan, um, you know, in just a minute. Um, but uh, if, if I could ask Gina Gale and Justin um, right afterwards, just to kind of, uh, you know, recap a little bit what you find to be the most uh, salient points right now in the market and, and what you think the likelihood is of, you know, any big changes over the next, uh, next year or so. Um, yeah, happy to happy to start there and give a few thoughts. So, you know, I think that um, the markets are definitely this is just the beginning, in my opinion, I think we're going to see a lot more retail involvement in the markets. And I, I think that that's great. But I also think that we have to be mindful about what this means for the larger uh, stability, efficiency and integrity of the markets. Um, I care a lot about the integrity of the markets and um, and what uh, these larger uh, this these fluctuations mean for uh, how people engage with the market, how people perceive the market and investor confidence in the market. I think that uh, banding around words like the markets are rigged, I agree there, that is just, um, it's a bit much, and maybe that's not how we should be thinking about it, but it is time for us to possibly update um, Reg NMS and update our market structure such that it's operating uh, for the benefit of, um, of everyone that is in the market as much as possible because the markets will never be fair, right? It is a, a game in which um, my gain is someone else's loss, um, but it, it, it does need to be a transparent market that is accessible um, uh, as much as possible to the retail investors that we're trying to bring in. Um, and so, you know, I think it'll be, um, it's a it's a great time. It's a great inflection point in the US capital markets. And I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Thanks a lot. And thanks again for, for joining us. Uh, uh, Justin, can uh, can you uh, you know maybe kind of take us back to the beginning, some of the points we were hitting on, and and, and anything else that you might want to close up uh, close up here, and anything you're hearing from you know your clients and, and in the market, uh, you know some really interesting insight. Sure, I mean I, I think maybe you alluded at the beginning to the um, with respect to your question about what's likely to happen uh, in the coming months. You alluded to the previous administration having a kind of a totally different viewpoint and there being a change now in the, in the focus. And I think that's true. The previous administration was very active with respect to market structure issues, somewhat unexpectedly, and didn't really pay attention at all to the off exchange world. It was all let's let's change the exchanges. They're the bad guys. They're responsible for everything that's you know, sort of unpleasant in market structure. And now the off exchange bit has really been brought into focus by the increase in retail and off exchange market share that we've seen the past couple of years. And I think we're seeing a more balanced approach. And it definitely sounds like policymakers are concerned about the quality of the NBBO and public markets and whether it is being harmed by this increase in non-transparent, non-public, you know, less regulated trading. And so for me, I just want to reiterate that broader point that we need to try to find out the answer to that question because it's it's extremely important. Like this is why the stock market exists, right? You have issuers on one end, you have asset owners on the other, you need to get the price right. If you're not doing that, then you have a much bigger problem than you know any of the smaller things that we're talking about. So I really hope that uh, we, we see policymakers try to answer that question and then use that answer to fuel whatever it is that they do. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you joining the panel. Um, Jonathan, do you want to, uh, you know, I, I don't know if there's anything you'd like to kind of go back to Justin's points earlier about payment for order flow um, and anything you'd like to, to, to mention kind of wrapping up here, uh, broader points. Thanks a lot. Yeah, just three really quick points. Number one, um, uh, the I think the markets are uh, not inherently rigged. I disagree with the idea that they're they're unfair. Um, I think that uh, people uh, uh, that 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 um, you know the people who have do better research, the people who have better insights or instincts about markets are going to do better. But it's no more rigged than you know a a sporting event is rigged in the sense that you know the better team tends to to win as long as everybody's playing by the same rules. I, to I, I very strongly agree with the point that we are living in a world in which there are two, for, for most equity securities, there are two markets, kind of an inside market and an outside market. And I agree with Justin, it's really important that uh, we, uh, that, 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 that uh, this either be, be corrected at, or at a minimum, that uh, uh, people are informed about that fact. It's an extremely important 
um, uh, institutional fact about market structure uh, that doesn't um, uh, that 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 needs to pick up at least as much salience as the payment for order flow controversy, but it just hasn't hasn't gotten it. The last thing I would say is I do disagree with the notion that retail investors have any idea from a disclosure on Form 605 or 606 or whatever about what's going on with payment for order flow. I don't think they have a clue. You look at the websites for these retail traders and they don't mention payment for order flow. They talk about the fact that this is commission free and they make it sound like, you know, that, that people are getting a completely free lunch and people seem to be drinking that Kool-Aid. So I'll stop with that. Thanks so much. Um, and thank you. Thank you all three for, for really, I think what was a really lively discussion. Time flew. Um, we're already, uh, you know, at, at 1130. Um, and thank you to everyone in the audience too, who, who sent in some great questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to all of them. Um, but uh, I guess time flies over the internet. <laughs> um, uh, we're going to take a 15 minute break now. Um, next, uh, we're going to go to a fireside chat with Commissioner, SEC Commissioner Lod Roisman. Um, that'll begin at 1145. Thanks so much.